Hello and welcome to this podcast on Germany in the world by the Center for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. My name is Philipp Hirsch and today I will be talking with John Kampfner. He's a journalist who has followed German affairs for decades and summed up his insight recently in his best-selling book, Why the Germans Do It Better. John, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. Hi, Philip. Nice to be with you. John, Why the Germans Do It Better has received great reviews by The Guardian, The Times, or The New Statesman, to name just a few. And in this company, I feel a bit inadequate to add my name to the list, but I, I want to say that I read it and I thought it really was an excellent engagement with modern German politics and society. Although I suspect that as a German, I was always going to like it, as you have a very positive view on Germany's political and socioeconomic model. I almost felt a bit flattered reading it. Now, your book came out in August 2020, and at that time, I think it's fair to say it really looked like Germany was doing it better. It was doing a better job at dealing with a pandemic than the UK, when you just talk about corona. Cases were lower, um, there were fewer deaths in Germany, the hospitals weren't overwhelmed at no stage, really. But of course, at the beginning of this year, Germany and the EU struggled to get their vaccination program going, unlike the UK, and sort of four or five months ago. There was a real turn in opinion in Germany for a while. After a lot of satisfaction uh, of the management of the pandemic, there was a lot of dissatisfaction. At that point, did you ever ask yourself whether the Germans still do it better? Well, the first thing to say, Philip, is that I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. But I must say, the fact that it made you feel good would put you in a minority of Germans. Because the vast majority of Germans that I spoke to when I was researching the book and when the book was coming out was horror. They couldn't. And they said to me, you cannot write this book. Some, some, some in jest, not always. I won't let you write this book. This is too embarrassing. This is too awkward. No polite German would ever sing our own praises. And if somebody else sang our own praises, that would leave us feeling equally uncomfortable. And that only actually spurred me on to write the book. And I've been really, I mean, I've been shocked and not an academic word, but gobsmacked at how it has flown off the shelves and how it has seems to have caught a moment in Britain. And I, I get, it's not just the sales and, and the crits, it's also just individual emails I get from Brits, from others around the, uh, around the world, based in Germany, based in Britain, saying, Thank goodness. Because actually, if you look at any British bookshop, and you know what a small island we are, and if you happen to find a Europe section in that bookshop, and if in that Europe section you happen to find a Germany section, then you could bet your bottom euro that pretty much every book would be related to the First or Second World War. Of course, there have been a few. Neil McGregor, British Museum and Humboldt Forum, did a great book on Germany, former ambassador Paul Lever and James Hawes also uh, of Oxford has written a good book, but there aren't many. And those that are have actually been quite recent. So the fact that people want to engage in a conversation that doesn't revolve around old caricatures of Germany, I find not just as an author um, satisfying, but I find at the risk of sounding pious, more generally, I think it's important and I think it says something about post-Brexit Britain and the sort of, oh, for goodness sake, are we really as bad as we're behaving? So that's the general point. Now, to your point about COVID, yes, absolutely. I mean, when it came out in hardback, 
in English last August, in the run-up to that, in the first lockdown, when Britain was a poster boy or girl for how not to do it. It was a disaster in every which way. And one cannot be glib about this because it had the highest death toll, pretty much the highest death rate, and still does. I mean, in spite of everything, in spite of the vaccinations which will come to, Britain's numbers are still terrible in aggregate. And that isn't to score a political point. That is to say tens of thousands of people lost their lives due to political and structural incompetence and arrogance. The British should hold their head in shame for, just as other countries too, Bolsonaro, Brazil, Donald Trump, America. And of course, there is a direct line with populism and hubris versus the quiet competence that, in my view, Germany epitomizes. Now, to get to the vaccines, yes, absolutely. I did have a few wobbles. It must be said, January, February, March, when the Brits were rolling out the vaccine and praise where it's due to Kate Bingham and those in Britain who who turned things around. I would attribute very little to the senior politicians, but I do think senior figures in biomedicine did incredibly well, juxtaposed by the decision of Germany, France, Italy and the Netherlands to abandon their plans for vaccines in the summer of 2020, throwing their lot with the European Commission, which palpably did not have the capability to deal with any of this. And again, that produced further suffering that didn't need to take place. It produced no little schadenfreude in Britain as well, and sort of most bizarre attempts at Brexit justification. Now, if you fast forward to June, July 2021, they're catching up, depending on which country you're talking about, where I'm now currently in Germany, it's probably about four weeks behind. But the weekly vaccination rate is necessarily faster. Now, there's a lot that Germany needs to learn from this period. Its failure to digitise is incredibly important. Some of the cumbersome risk aversion bureaucracy in Germany, nothing was ever done until the last person has signed the last piece of paper. That needs to be looked at. But the Germans themselves are asking themselves that same question. And I'll just conclude this, your question with this, which is, it does say a lot about the different countries' mentalities. And in many ways, it corroborates my thesis, I would suggest, rather than challenges it, that if you look at COVID in the round, the one thing Britain got right and it did get right, was the vaccines. And that leads to sort of triumphalism, flag-waving, rule Britannuaism. The one thing the Germans got wrong, the vaccines, leads to breast-beating, self-vilification, self-criticism, which I do think is a problem for Germany. I don't think it is a good thing. And I do think it's holding the country back. That's a very fair observation. Indeed, squares of my personal experience as a German living in the UK that throughout sort of February, March, April, when I was talking to friends in Germany or family, I felt they were much more skeptical on their own government's performance than me or friends from the UK looking at Germany from afar, even at that time. Um, you mentioned the question of reform. I think that's actually a really interesting one that I wanted to bring up. This has been a really prominent theme in the last few months. And even Amin Laschet, who is arguably the representative of continuity, 
and the, the sort of least uh, radical option on the ticket, let's say. Even he has really put the idea of modernizing Germany and modernizing German administration at the center of his campaign and his platform. How realistic is it that this is actually going to happen? I mean, after all, you talk about mentality. Can mentality really change just because now suddenly there is a realization that there are problems with administration? Every time Germany feels that it's getting it wrong, it attacks itself, it laments the fact that others are being less than respectful from the outside, but it gets there in the end. Think back to the 1999 Economist cover, Germany, the sick man of Europe. This was before the Hartz reforms. This was when the enormous multi-billion cost of the rebuilding of the former GDR was really coming home to bite. And again, this led to an absolute feeding frenzy of self-doubt among Germans. It led to a reform program that by international standards would be seen as quite radical, but not that radical. But many Germans found it excessively radical, which was the Hartz reforms. But they did, in my view, the trick, although economists, particularly on the left, would disagree with that assessment. And I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm not starry-eyed about Germany in any which way. I could spend the next half an hour talking about the things that Germany gets wrong. You know, the book title is deliberately binary because, as my publisher said, do you want to sell this book or not? Uh, you know, if I'd written a book, a title which was more accurate to the book, which would be something like why Germans get most things right much of the time, it wouldn't really have sold so well. So Germany does get things wrong. And a punctiliousness and a thoroughness that, in my view, is its overwhelming strength, can also hold it back. But I mean, don't forget, it has dealt with all manner of crises. I keep on harking back to unification and the war, which, if you were writing history through the lens of stereotyping Germany, you would have said they couldn't remotely have coped with a series of events for which there was not some civic ordinance or constitutional rule book from which people would take instructions. Nothing of the sort existed. And it was a remarkable revolution in which nobody died. And it wasn't just Germans that could take praise for that. Gorbachev had a huge role in that, as did others. But it was an incredible revolution. I had the privilege, I was living in East Berlin in the GDR, as it was then, of witnessing it and reporting on it. And then unification, again, within less than a year, whatever the rights and the wrongs, and there were some wrongs, but I absolutely take the view, and I will argue with any German or anybody else, that unification was a resounding success, notwithstanding excessive privatization, various manifestations of arrogance and, and other things. I, I defy you to find any other country that could have dealt with that. Look again, 2015, at the refugee crisis. And while everybody else in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Britain and France, everybody else was slamming the door on this caravan of more than a million of the world's most destitute. Germany let them in. And not only did Germany let them in, and okay, you could argue that Merkel didn't actually have a choice, but within that time, again, notwithstanding problems and faults, notwithstanding the rise of the AFD, uh, and you know, it led to a lot of social strife, social discombobulation, particularly in a country that is not particularly, and had previously not been particularly multicultural, uh, led to uh, a lot of problems. But again, if you look at it in the round, 
it is an incredible success story. The, the process of assimilation of jobs and training and, and everything else, I think it's a remarkable story. So Germany can do things in a rapid and unpredictable way without a rule book. It absolutely can, must, and I think will modernize, but it has to. The lack of digitization about it, if you go to a doctor, a GP, they write things out by hand and in, on pen and paper. I mean, that sort of stuff belongs to the 19th century. And I mean, some of it is legitimate. It's based on an aversion to the misuse of data, not just by the Nazis, but by the Stasi. But again, that's just a matter of processes, democratic checks and balances, and understanding that, of course, certain things will go wrong, because that's in the nature of malfeasance and human error. But definitely the place needs to modernize, but absolutely it will. We could have the same conversation on the question of industry. In our previous episodes, Sonny Baba and John Jungklausen were a bit more critical on Angela Merkel's performance of preparing German economy for the future. Another thing to look at, of course, would be the, the car industry. I mean, lots of Germans' prosperity comes from the car industry, which is clearly facing a major shift with the end of the combustion engine, or at least the alleged end. Are you as, as optimistic at sort of that the German companies like Volkswagen, like BMW, can embrace this change and still remain top of the game? Well, again, I'm not starry-eyed. You know, the German phrase, langsam aber sicher, you know, slow but sure, works both ways. You know, there, the slowness has held it back, and the German car industry was absolutely caught asleep by the first phase of electrification and by autonomous vehicles, plus the VW emissions scandal. And there is a failure of German regulation, which also contributed to the absolutely horrific scandal of the payments company Wirecard. Clearly, there is a sense that financial and business regulation is far too weak. Germany would not be the only country in the world where that applies. But the sense of sort of men, and it's always men, and Germany does have a real diversification problem, worse than the United States, worse than Britain, worse than other countries. And jobs in the Aufsichtsrat, in, in the you know, uh, oversight boards um, of companies tend to go from one person to the next and back to the other one, and it's all, all good friends and that sort of thing. And that has led to either deliberate or through laziness, a failure of regulation. And that absolutely needs to change. The fact that Tesla walked straight into Brandenburg absolutely shocked the German car industry. That said, both technologically and in terms of sales, again, they're catching up. But I mean, Germany, you know, we could talk also forever about the many contradictions of Germany and the green agenda. It, you know, it is a country with by far the strongest green political movement and political party. Pretty much every park or square you walk through on a weekend in any town in Germany, there's always some green uh, small demonstration going on or some sort of pop-up explanatory thing going on. And it's absolutely at the heart of public life. At the same time, the German obsession with cars continues. So it is, you know, it is a mixed bag. And the over-reliance also of the car industry and German industry in general on exports to emerging powers, particularly China, is problematic. Uh, it's not particularly good risk management to be overly dependent on, um, on one market or a few markets. At the same time, it also skews the political agenda as well. 
And I think perhaps more than any other area I am most critical of Germany is foreign policy and uh, specifically towards China and Russia. The green issue and, and foreign policy towards China come together very clearly here because it seems to me that the Green Party seems to be committed to having a stricter course towards China. But also, of course, if you really follow up on green agenda, you will also have to be sort of more restrictive on traditional industries like the, the auto industry. I mean, that, that would have put them in a double squeeze. I sort of I struggle to see how both of that would be possible in a, in a simultaneous way. I don't know whether you have any views on this. I mean, you have to differentiate policy towards Russia and China. Mm. Um, with Russia, I think a lot of it is wrongly influenced by a continued sense of German guilt. Even the German president recently, when it came to talking about Putin and whether the Russians should be further sanctioned for their awful treatment of Alexei Navalny, was trying to justify the softly, softly approach by saying, well, look at the terrible things that Germany did on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. And to me, frankly, that is an outrageously ridiculous thing to say. It is confusing a warmth towards the Russian people with a warmth towards a kleptocrat in the Kremlin. And secondly, it's a lazy invoking of war guilt, almost as a comfort blanket for doing very little on the foreign policy stage. With regard to China, there isn't that sense of personal or historical indebtedness or warmth. It is much more of a pragmatic sense of not doing anything in this competition to embrace the Chinese market. It's more Machiavellian than the Russian approach. And one can understand it. I mean, Joe Biden can talk as much as he likes about confronting China and having a non-confrontational policy towards China. But as the FT and other publications have written recently, Wall Street has more developed bilateral relations now, financial services companies in New York with Shanghai than pretty, pretty much any other country as well. So it is a very complicated foreign policy picture. But this is, I suppose, my central message in my book, which is stated more strongly, actually, in the German language version of the book. Uh, which is more of a polemic and much less of a descriptive. But that is very much saying to Germany, you have a responsibility. You look around. Trump may be gone, but Trumpism certainly hasn't gone. Britain is run, I'm sorry for being reductive here, but for the sake of simplicity, by a clown who waves a union flag and sings Royal Britannia in the bath while getting up to all kinds of peccadilloes and just isn't taken seriously around the world. And the extent to which... The Insel, you know, the island is now regarded as a source of entertainment in Germany rather than seriousness. One senior German official said to a group that I was with that Germany's relations with Britain were now equivalent to Germany's relationship with Malaysia. I know he said that certain amount for effect, but I think it does say the extent to which Britain is no longer, and I say this with great sadness as a Brit, taken seriously in the chancelleries of Europe. And that gives... This isn't just this isn't a sense this isn't a point about an opportunity for Germany. This is an obligation. Germany, if it is serious about learning the lessons of the Second World War, should not be saying we are so awful, we are so guilt-ridden, we are so untrustworthy, we can't do anything. It needs to say the exact opposite, which is we have many faults and we always need to be humble, 
Humility, by the way, is never a bad thing in any diplomacy. But we now have an obligation to step in where others have failed to defend liberal democracy. I mean, this is a surprising question, potentially, given of what you just said about the UK. But of course, the UK just went through this process of an integrated review, writing a sort of strategic document to put it all out there and to find a way through this very complex strategic picture that you that you laid out. Can you see such an exercise in Germany? Could that? Do you think that's something that the German political system would ever want to go through or could ever go through? Well, absolutely, but it, but it does go through. I mean, every year the Defence Ministry does do quite a serious security review every summer. The Asia-Pacific joint strategy with the French actually was, was ahead of its time in the autumn. And if one looks back to the start of 2019, and it was the BDI, the German Employers Federation, that came out with, I think, one of the most considered and actually quite hawkish reviews about how Germany and Europe should engage with China and talked about China being a strategic rival for the first time, which was tougher language, actually, than the British Integrated Review. I think Germany has rode back from some of that language before. But one talks to people in the security and strategic defense establishment, which I do from time to time, they see whether it is German successful medium enterprises being bought up by Chinese companies, or whether they see the whole question of the cyber threat or anything else. They are alert to this. But it is one thing to be defensively alert. I suppose the point I am trying to make is for a more unabashed German leadership in conjunction with others of to use old language, the free world. As I say, it is happening and people do talk about it. And in some ways, Germany is in a more interesting place on this and the new generation. And and as you pointed out earlier, the Greens are quite forward thinking, in my view, in this area, whereas the Social Democrats, I think, are absolute laggards. But there, there is going to be a new generation of German politicians. And to be honest, they've got nowhere to hide because the European Union is threatened from its heart. It's threatened by Hungary and Poland and other states. Britain, which was a strategic ally of Germany, and that's one of the great tragedies for Germany, uh, is gone now. The United States, even under Biden, very different um, type to Trump, but even under Biden, has made it pretty clear that the sort of perpetual bankrolling and propping up of Europe is is a thing of the past. So the Germans have got nowhere to hide. In that sense, do you even see this question at stake in the election? Or is it something that's going to happen regardless of whether Armin Laschet or uh, Annalena Baerbock or Olaf Scholz end up in the chancellery? German pollsters, uh, and I have no inside track at all of German public opinion or polling trackers or anything else like that. But they have always said that the more you talk about foreign policy and threats, it's it's a vote loser rather than a vote winner, which I think is sad and wrong. So I don't imagine the parties will be going on the front foot to be talking about this too much. But of course, they're going to be asked about this in TV debates and elsewhere. Laschet is very much a safety first candidate. And I can understand the general median point that German politicians were using, which is, yes, we must confront the threats the threats where we can, and we have to toughen up our cyber defenses, and we have to be, show no tolerance for human rights abuses. 
But at the same time, we have to engage. I mean, that's the standard template. The question is, what is the nature of the engagement? How much do you make hostage to a desire to engage? One thing you brought up already was the question of the past when we talked about foreign policy towards Russia. And quite generally, this question of Germany coming to terms with the past, going through this process of Vergangenheitsbewältigung. That's obviously a very important one in German history since 1945. You still see this very much at, uh, at play in Germany, and it undoubtedly is. But I would be curious, as someone who's lived and who's in Germany for a while, who has observed Germany for a while, how much this has changed, how much this engagement with the history and how it plays out in politics has changed over the last 20, 30 years, given that there has been so much generational change in this period as well. The standard non-specialized appraisal of Germany's coming to terms with the past after the Second World War tends to think that it all began straight after 1945. It didn't, as is generally accepted. I mean, the Constitution, the Grundgesetz, the Basic Law was enacted in 1949, and the foundations for the new state and what I regard as a brilliant constitution was enacted then, and the economy got on its feet, as we know, and the Wirtschaftswunder very quickly. Political coming to terms with the past uh, and familial coming to terms with the past didn't take place for a good couple of decades after that. Of course, there were the high-profile trials, Nuremberg, Eichmann and others, but the what did you do in the war, daddy and mommy question was really only started to be posed in and around 1968 and the rebellions then that followed. The first phase, therefore, of Vergangenheitsbewältigung or Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, and Germans do love their compound words, really took place after, as you know, in the late 1960s. I think I would argue that it really properly, then you have the historical streit, the argument among the historians in the 80s. It really only began then and after and with unification. So it is not one of those things that you say, oh yes, the, the history of post-war Germany was a straight line towards that. It, it emphatically was not. The history of the last 30 years has been remarkable in, in that regard and, and has no comparison. But it is an absolute template for how to deal with that wherever you go, whether you see the Stolkerstein or the stones on the ground or whether you see many monuments and memorials everywhere and the way children are taught in school is exemplary. However, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, this tendency to use the past for entirely legitimate reasons as a catch-all to say we Germans cannot be trusted. We cannot trust ourselves. So how on earth can you be naive enough to trust us? Is a problem. And it's a problem, as I stated, because it provides a get-out clause. It's allows Germany in some ways to enjoy the purity of a life on the fringes of international relations. Because Germany doesn't get involved in grubby wars, as a rule, it did in Kosovo, but Joschka Fischer had to invoke Auschwitz in order to get it through Parliament. And you could argue that on purely pragmatic grounds, not getting involved in Iraq and not getting involved in Libya were the right things to do. But it wasn't done, I think, from a pragmatic, hard-headed look at whether this was the right, right or wrong thing to do. It was done on an emotional, we are the Germans, we can't be trusted level. And I'm not arguing for, and in any case, the Americans have said, called time on liberal interventionism and on deployment of forces for non-defensive purposes. So it's not going to happen anyway. But also, just I think, as I said, in, in engagement with Russia, with China... 
in just being, if it's not military, then diplomatically, a tough-headed policeman in the world. That is something that Germany needs to start doing without invoking the war get-out clause. I don't see any dangers in Germany somehow reneging on what is now a deeply ingrained approach to coming to terms with the past. But I do see it, as I say, almost as too convenient now, too easy to cite as an excuse for inaction. Do you see any comparison in sort of this German coming to terms with the past and current debates in the UK, or not even that current debates in the UK, about the legacy of imperialism, colonialism in the UK, and this whole question of, of statues, etc. Is there, is there a link here or are these completely separate issues? But there is a link, and it's fascinating, and it's not just UK and Germany, it's happening everywhere. Macron has been interesting about returning sequestered artifacts from French museums to, to Africa. Germany has been the first country to apologize and pay reparations to Namibia, although that was criticized as being too little. But again, that's a classic German seeing the glass as half empty rather than half full. At least Germany has started that process, which no other country has done. So it is a live issue. In terms of public opinion, there are some considerable similarities. In terms of the political class, there are some considerable differences in Britain, the so-called culture war, a phrase I'm slightly reluctant to use, but it is convenient to use, is definitely now being denominated among those who would do down our empire versus you know, those who would like to celebrate you know, great Britain's great sort of mission civilisatrice around the world. And it's, to me, a sad reflection, but one of many, of a government, and I say this not as an anti-conservative point because I have worked and dealt with many conservative governments in the past that I have respected, but not this one, that sees the past and harking back to past glories really as a classic diversionary tactic, as a sort of balm to, to put over the wounds of the fact that Britain is a deeply divided, fractured, and I would say distressed country, but we can all unite behind the flag and the fact that Winston Churchill did well and we used to rule the world. And so it is a very unsophisticated argument in Britain, I would contend, certainly at the political level. In Germany, it is a far more fraught uh, and complicated argument. There are no right answers. There are no wrong answers. At what point do you stop taking down statues? At what point do you stop renaming buildings? You know, the Tate in Britain, the world's best modern art galleries, do you start renaming it because uh, Tate and Lyle was not a, a great colonial exemplar for our modern taste? So these are live issues. And as I say, there's no right or wrong answer. But what there is a requirement of is a mature considered debate involving politicians, the public, civil society, experts, and others. And this is where it goes to the heart of my book, where one differentiates between what I call the infantilism of British public life, which is based around rhetoric and some of the superficial attributes, and this more methodical, sometimes a little bit dull, but always more considered and mature German approach to problem solving. There's always quite an in interest in razzmatazz and in rhetoric and, and that sort of thing. And I can understand that. But if I had to choose between the two, 
I know which one I, which side I was on. Well, fantastic. Uh, thank you very much, John, for this excellent, encompassing interview about Germany today. That was John Kampfner, journalist and author of Why the Germans Do It Better, which I can only recommend highly to anyone interested in Germany uh, today, even if I'm the only German liking it. This interview concludes our podcast series on Germany in the world at the eve of an important general election. We don't know what is going to happen in the election, but I hope that we've been able to highlight the main themes, issues and people that will shape the campaign, its outcome and its aftermath. I just want to thank all my interviewees, as well as John Freeman from the Center of Geopolitics, who has done all the vital technical and editorial work behind the scenes over the past few weeks. And of course, I want to thank you, the audience, for tuning in. I hope you found this podcast series informative and thought-provoking. You can find the Center for Geopolitics on Twitter at Cam Geopolitics. All of our events and podcasts are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk. Thank you.